I'm Eli Sands, and you're listening to Deep Cut. On Deep Cut, we typically compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by me or one of my co-hosts, Wilson Lai and Benjamin Yap. From June through August this year, that's 2022, Ben, Wilson, and I took a hiatus to enjoy the summer. We decided to use that time to experiment with a new type of episode. Anytime one of us watched a movie, we recorded a brief hot take audio clip, which could eventually combine with our other clips into a summer 2022 movie diary. You're about to hear mine, and if you look at the Deep Cut episode feed, you'll find those of Ben and Wilson as well as a summer viewing roundup discussion all three of us had together to joyously end our hiatus. As happens in the face of any diversion from routine, the hiatus from recording that Wilson, Ben, and I took this summer made me feel reflective. I live on the other side of the planet from Wilson and Ben, who are two of my closest friends and thought partners in both movie watching and life overall. We started Deep Cut as a way to stay connected and collaborative in the face of geographic distance and the isolation of the early COVID-19 pandemic, but also in the face of growing through our 20s and the ways in which that can feel alienating. I haven't been in the same room as Ben since 2019, and I was so very lucky to spend time with Wilson when he visited New York this July, an experience of deep personal significance, which you'll hear reflected in two of the following audio diary entries. I'm so happy to be recording again with these two, because the process and routine of creating our show bolsters and enriches two of the most important friendships in my life. I love these two dearly, and maybe that comes through in the slight adriftness I sense in my solo summer recordings when I listen back to them. They are with me anytime I watch a movie, because they are the people with whom I cannot wait to relate my viewing experiences. They challenge and comfort me, and that's exactly what I want from movies themselves. If you enjoy Deep Cut, please remember to give us a rating and a review, and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also keep up with Deep Cut at Deep Cut Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. If you want to talk about movies or other art with us, please join us on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the episode description. And now I'll rewind the tape to June for the start of my summer 2022 movie diary. Today is June 7th, 2022, and I watched the 2018, maybe, staging of Hamlet recorded by the BBC starring Andrew Scott. This was definitely a weird pick for my first summer deep cut viewing entry, whatever we're going to call these things, because it was a stage adaptation and not really a movie per se. But I was trying to think about the ways to break this down. One, the performances. Two, how it is staged as a piece of theater. And three, how it is captured as a recording of live theater. First, the performances. So Andrew Scott is an actor I really love. His turn in the second season of Fleabag in particular is really one of maybe my favorite performances in terms of how he couples with the writing and creates such a fascinating character, not just on his own, but in relation to the character of Fleabag or Phoebe Waller-Bridge's unnamed character. Here, the highlight is absolutely his soliloquies. 
he talks like he is coming up with the words on the spot, and it's pretty remarkable. It's a unique thing to do with Shakespeare. As I said in our Macbeth, or Joel Cohen Macbeth episode, part of the challenge of Shakespeare is to translate it in one way or another to modern sensibilities so that the emotion is intelligible to the audience. Andrew Scott does that really seemingly spontaneously, and it's kind of a magic trick. I don't think the actors around him are either capable or trying to do that same thing that he is doing with such an in-the-moment feel in how they perform their dialogue, which is not a bad thing. They're also very excellent actors, but it definitely feels like he is set apart from the others. And again, maybe that's not such a bad thing either because Hamlet is pretty set apart from the other characters in that play. In terms of how this is as a stage show, I found some of the choices, capital C choices, from the director to be a little bit distracting. It sets it in a sort of modern Denmark with things like video feeds and modern clothing and pistols instead of knives and swords. And I don't know, some of the ways that Scott is directed in his more extreme moments outside of the soliloquies when he's with other actors are a little bit distracting. And there's a whole point when Hamlet is talking with the traveling performers about their show and he speaks poetically about the nature of theater and storytelling as this great thing, blah, blah, blah. And all the actors turn to face the audience during that moment just to punctuate how special the theater is. And I literally rolled my eyes. Way too much. Way too much on some of the choices there. And in terms of how it is captured as live performance, pretty unremarkable at best and poorly done at worst. There are clearly some moments when they had sound problems. There's this intermittent Bob Dylan scoring that pops in every now and then and is super distracting and they don't play the sound that got recorded in the show during those moments, probably because of the feedback that you get from that music playing in the theater at the same time as the recording. There's some mic fuzz. The editing between scenes in particular is actually kind of sloppy. Overall, worth watching for Andrew Scott's performance, but you can kind of find those clips on YouTube and you don't really need to watch the whole thing. This one's for the Scott heads, I would say. Eli out. Today is June 13th and feeling inspired by Ben watching and loving Cure, I decided to watch my first Kiyoshi Kurosawa movie. That was Pulse or Cairo. Man, oh man, what a depressing movie. I'm reading a book called The Art of Cruelty by Maggie Nelson, and in it she cites the poet Fanny Howe who said, quote, the point of art is to show people that life is worth living by showing that it isn't, end quote, which is an interesting quotation that I've been trying to wrap my head around all week. I think it kind of applies to Pulse, but also I don't think this movie thinks life is worth living. It's... I'm completely compelled by it and terrified by it. It really manages to stay deeply unnerving and upsetting throughout the runtime. And there's a deep bleakness inside this movie. It's probably the most compelling vision of a ghost that I've seen. I don't mean just visually, though also that, but also what ghosts would do to humans, the despair that they would create. Uh, I mean, I'm both 
a little unnerved to be in the dark right now because I'm watching this at night. And I'm also feeling, like, deflated. Man, bleak movie, very compelling. I would watch other Kurosawa. I don't know if I want to watch this one again, but I'm going to be thinking about this all week. I just know it. And I'm looking forward to talking with Ben about Kurosawa because what a fascinating director who has a supreme control on tone, really scary sound. I was sitting with my head near the rear speakers and when ghosts whisper, help me, right next to the microphone, uh, gosh, I just like startled so bad. I gasped at multiple points. There aren't really strong jump scares and that's not the point. I'm, I'm saying it's a good thing that the type of scare that Kurosawa uses more often, which is so fascinating and effective, is things will be normal and then all of a sudden it'll just like creepily turn into something that's terrifying. We're compelled and drawn to understand things that we don't. It's a sort of curiosity killed the cat, but it's this terrifying idea that what if we can't not go near the thing that saps us of all of our energy in life and causes us to have that deep level of despair? That's a really smart thing to map onto the internet. It makes for a really compelling and upsetting and deeply sad movie. I'd like to watch something a little bit lighter next, so maybe Crimes of the Future isn't that, but I know that's in my near future, so ugh. All right, I'm going to try to sleep, probably unsuccessfully. It's Tuesday, June 14th, 2022, and I just watched Videodrome, directed by David Cronenberg. For the second night in a row now, I've watched a movie that is deeply anxious about screens and has a strong death drive. I don't fully know how I feel about this one yet. Full disclosure, I watched it partially because it could be going towards research on a miniseries on David Cronenberg, but I don't know. I am really taken by Crash, a movie that I love by Cronenberg, and Videodrome is a little bit more tawdry. It is obviously presenting all these heady philosophical ideas about what TV does to the mass public and the mind, and it literalizes that by changing James Woods' body. And then in the second half, it becomes all action and hallucination. There's something that I miss about the intrigue of the first half when everything kind of, kind of gets explained in the second half. Um, I don't know. I don't think I have my thoughts fully together on this, but I'm okay with leaving it that way because if we do talk about Cronenberg, whether or not this is the popular pick, I'm sure we'll be touching on Videodrome in some capacity. So maybe Ben and Wilson can help me sort out my feelings on this one. Today is Friday, June 17th, 2022, and I just watched Memoria. It's playing at Film at Lincoln Center, which is my favorite place to see movies in the whole world. And I watched it in the Francesca Beale Theater. Now I'm sitting on top of the Francesca Beale Theater on a nice patch of grass. I love going to the movies alone and not telling anyone that I'm going, disappearing for a little bit. This is the first time I've been able to do that since before the start of the pandemic, so about three years. And what a perfect movie to do that with. 
I had a free afternoon. I slipped into Memoria and it was really moving. That's a really special movie. I have my ideas about what it might be about intellectually, but the things that I want to focus on for the sake of this little audio diary are the deep respect I have for the sound team and that I feel different, I suppose, right now, where I feel like I'm very dialed into what's around me, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. And it's very special when a movie does that to you, when it changes something that you can't quite describe. So I'll close out by saying that as the movie ended, I sat and just watched the credits and listened to this soundtrack of rainfall, and I noticed. As I turned my head around, the sound of the rain changed. Then I looked at a speaker, and I had a thought. I stood out of my seat, and I walked towards it. I heard one sound of rain, a kind of trickle. Then I walked to a different speaker further down the wall, and it was more of a steady pour. I walked to the back of the theater. There were some distant booms of thunder in one speaker, then to another speaker, and I heard an entirely different rain sound. So no matter where you're sitting in that theater, you have a slightly different experience of the movie. You hear different things, but it's the same movie, and you're in the same theater with the same people. That feels like a synecdoche of memoria to me. The date is June 29th right now, but on June 28th, shortly before midnight, I got out of a screening of Crimes of the Future, David Cronenberg, woo. After not really digging Videodrome, I feel back in the pocket again with Cronenberg. Yeah, really, really great movie. My hot take is that it is surprisingly optimistic. I think that the, spoilers, movie ends with Saul Tenser, played by Viggo Mortensen, who's great, great, specifically at clearing his throat, going from making art out of spite and resentment for his body to making art out of self-acceptance. There's something kind of lovely and intimate about this movie, and it shares with Crash that same DNA of fascination and compulsion that takes on an erotic dimension towards that which is harmful to the body. Eroticism is very of the body, and yet his characters have an attraction to that which harms the body. So it's just a fascinating tension when Cronenberg isn't trying to moralize about it, like I think he does in Videodrome. In Crimes of the Future, it's just a dive into that compulsion free of judgment. I really had a great time at Crimes of the Future. It made me laugh a lot, partially out of discomfort, I'll admit, but also it's kind of kind. It's a pretty kind movie, surprisingly. I'll be very curious to hear what Ben and Wilson think of Crimes of the Future. Eli out. Eli here, the date is July 4th, 2022. And I'm here with my good friend, Adam DeSantis. Hello. And we just watched a Polish movie from 1985 called Ob Oba, The End of Civilization by Piotr Shulkin. And it is a post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear war bunker drama, tour of the shelter. I, yeah, hard to classify it <laughs> yeah. in our terms. I um, guess sort of speculative sci-fi, hard sci-fi, yeah. but everyone yeah. is a little insane. Yeah, definitely kind of, um, what's that German, the uh, downfall vibes? Oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> in terms of like a bunker film, yeah. the last days, things are crumbling. <laughs> it's kind of a weird comparison to make to it. No, I think that is strangely apt, upsettingly apt. Just the kind of lunacy. The kind of just like no one is quite sane anymore. Everything's bleak. Well, extremely bleak. We know there's no future. We're at varying levels of accepting that. Mm. Maybe the most fascinating thematic element is this idea of faith and lying to the masses and how people in power use that or fail to use that. The way that they got everyone into this bunker was by lying to them and saying that an ark was coming to save them from this bunker if they could all get inside. But then once everyone got there, they were like, okay, just kidding. There is no ark. You have to focus on life here. But then no one really believed them. They still wanted to believe in the ark. So they refused to accept that there was no no one coming to help them. The main character is a man named Soft, who is a sort of orderly slash detective type who meets various people and interacts with them to do his job or do things like it buy seems onions. seems like maintaining order, mainly. Yeah. And also kind of a... He struck me as like a kind of like a pragmatic, like play all sides kind of person, just trying to survive and keep things kind of running. He's the most sane character who we meet for a while, at least, and everyone kind of slaps him and calls him stupid. But <laughs> things crumble pretty quickly over the 85 minutes. And to me, the most special component of it is the world building. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting imagery and just... And sound. And sound design, yeah. The ending shots of the film, uh, like, are, I don't are, can we spoil... I don't want to spoil it. No, that's fine. But you have, like, you know, the masses of people clamoring to get outside, running towards the light, which they're running to their death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it looked cool. I don't know. Yeah, I think that is... In a sort of mad god-ish way, which anyone who's listened to the 2021 year in review will be familiar with, it's bleak yet fascinating and compelling and beautiful. And there's something about this movie that is fascinated with the people who live in that situation, even though it is pitiful. And there's something strangely humanist about that, I feel. I don't know what you think about that. I'm I'm maybe split on that. I mean, I it it, it was tough for me because I, I I I wasn't sure whether to read it as an allegory, which I guess I mean it's this kind of hard sci-fi. You probably should. Mm, the ending is certainly allegory. Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, weird ending. Very weird. Very different from other speculative fiction that I've been absorbing lately. There's not a lot to compare it to, really, in terms of what it's about. But, I mean, having watched Threads and The Day After, which are both extremely kind of almost documentary-like in their depiction of the end of civilization, this seems to have taken a more abstract approach. Yeah, combining beauty with the pity, particularly pictorial beauty. Yeah. Well, I don't know about beauty, but... Oh, I would say beauty. Really? Yeah. Okay. Which is troubling in a sense. What was beautiful? I mean, it was certainly awe-inspiring, but... Poetic? Poetic? Sure. That kind of beauty. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Lots to chew over, and 
I suppose something to seek out for anyone who's interested in Eastern European cinema and strange little corners of that. It has a very unique flavor and particularly <laughs> unique acting style <laughs> that runs the range from subtle to over the top. There were a high number of kind of maniacal laughs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a lot of that. The Arca. <laughs> Eli and Adam out. Or are we both going? <laughs> <laughs> it is July 7th, 2022. I'm Eli. I'm Wilson. <gasps> Together! <laughs> At last! <laughs> Wilson is on his uh, Wilson Live World Tour 2022. Yeah. And stopping in New York for July, mm -hmm. the first of many movies to come this month. Exactly. We saw Lost Highway. By David Lynch. And yes. now we're sitting on top of the Francesca Beale Theater. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you think of the movie, Eli? So it's interesting. I really love The Return, as Wilson and Ben have heard all too much of. And in both Inland Empire and Lost Highway, which I believe are the two movies that directly most recently precede the return if i'm not wrong there are elements of what makes the return feel so special to me but i don't feel as emotionally engaged at least on first viewings for both of them mm -hmm. this is by design that it is so distanced and I'll admit that I fell asleep in a couple points. Me too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think it was a little bit of the jet lag that I'm experiencing. I'd be willing to visit it again down the road. There are things that I really like, the music, mm -hmm. the I lighting. Think, yeah, I think the music, the cinematography are also the high points for me. But I felt a bit lost like through, through a lot of it. Like, of course, I think David Lynch is coming from a place where he doesn't want you to get everything that he's putting on screen yeah um and it's all about your your feeling like how how you feel while watching this and definitely i felt uncomfortable a lot of the time but i think um, my confusion led me to not connect as much um like viscerally not even emotionally but viscerally to, yeah. to what was happening because i'm like yeah i can see these horrible things are happening but i'm like i, I like things are not like clicking in my mind and i think that was like the block for me, personally. I think that's a good way to put it, because when Lynch works really well, to me, it is a very visceral feeling, particularly of terror and dread. Yeah. Those very in-the-body feelings of not understanding something, it can still be emotionally engaging in that sense, and mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily feel that on yeah. this watch. Yeah, those are quick thoughts <laughs> on Lost Highway. <laughs> we caught the 4K restoration that's playing at Lincoln Center. Very pretty. Yes. And we'll catch you soon. Talk soon. The date is July 13th, 2022. Mm -hmm. I'm Eli. I'm Wilson. And... I'm Justina. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you guys don't know, Justina makes the covers for Deep Cut. And Justina and I were both really lucky um, to be able to catch Mad God, Phil Tippett's Mad God, which was Eli's favorite film of last year on the big screen with Eli. And we caught it at IFC Center. Eli's talked about this film on, on the 2021 Best of episode. So I'm gonna go first. And Please. <laughs> I wanna say that I, I really love this movie. I think um, I really appreciate, I understand Eli's appreciation for 
the craft that went into all these creatures and building the whole world of the film, I still like can't wrap or my head around maybe at least like 10 things that were happening in the <laughs> film. Like I was like, how, how did this happen? And I think knowing that it took Tippett 30 years to make this, you, you can tell that some sequences were filmed earlier and some sequences used CGI maybe a little mm -hmm. bit and like compositing with like real life elements and stop motion elements. The amount of like gory horror elements really surprised me as well and I feel like that was balanced out really like, really beautifully with this really like calm score that was definitely like a highlight for me as well. Yeah, I would highly recommend people watch it and and catch it in a theater near you. Well yeah. said. Nice. I mean, we were talking about the body in the film and the body is something that was so easily destroyed and then regenerated and mm -hmm just like the general dehumanization or like how fleeting like life was in this film. And I feel like it was a really interesting commentary on sort of the late capitalist world we live in and also linking like what it means to be born and like what value does your life have. And then there's a really interesting sequence in the middle of the film that made me think about like our reproductive rights and how that sort of intersects with our labor rights as well and also how like schizophrenic like time was in the film mm -hmm. and how it felt like the general arc of the film like I felt like the goal was to sort of have the world like explode mm -hmm. and implode on itself and the like, soldier's end, goal right? yeah the soldier's goal yeah who yeah. we were following from the beginning and just like when the bombs stopped ticking I was so anxious and I just feel like that was such a good like characterization of time and also like reflective of our current political moment. That's my ramble. <laughs> there is no catharsis that comes from that goal. The bomb doesn't ultimately go off. I was thinking a lot about the structure of this movie this time around. One of the things that occurred to me is that the closest thing to catharsis the movie gets in a climax sense is this abstract sequence that the floating caretaker causes by killing the baby that comes from inside of the soldier. So anything beautiful in this movie comes from brutality. So well put. I agree with that. There's an inherent pull in it because they can't exist without each other, just as the characters which are so creative can't exist without the cruelty of having been made and destroyed by Phil Tippett, arguably the mad god of the movie. I'm really glad I got to watch it again with both of you. Very fun time. Yeah. Still one of my favorite movies. And yeah, I, I'll echo Wilson and say, seek it out if you can. Go see I agree, it. I agree. And we'll catch you for the next movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's July 24th, 2022 and I watched Marcel the Shell with Shoes on, the feature film, created based on the internet video from the early 2010s or so, starring Jenny Slate as the titular shell. And it's a stop motion movie, so you know it's gonna be my cup of tea. It was really delightful, very sweet, very sincere, very simple, just full of heart and a really fun time, and also very funny. 
I knew going in that it was probably going to make me cry, and it did at multiple points because it's just very sweet. Technically, something I'm thinking about is how on earth they did stop motion in daylight. Notoriously, with stop motion, you have to have very consistent lighting or else you'll get what looks like a flicker where the light changes across each still that you're taking because you're taking non-continuous still frames uh, and adjusting the figurines on camera between each frame that you take. So the lighting has to be consistent, is the point. A lot of this movie, the stop motion is happening in daylight. I imagine there's some compositing going on with the actual locations and the daylight there and stop motion that was taken at a different location with artificial light. Maybe some of it is cheated to look like natural light, but is actually artificial light. But there are things like Marcel moving around on the dashboard of a car as out the windshield, you're seeing real-time footage of cars going by and Marcel moving around in the foreground while a dog is in the background. Things like that that you cannot film at the same time. I'm very curious to see a VFX breakdown or something like that. Overall, really well done and a very sweet story. My one gripe is that it uses Bathos, the thing that I've talked about in our Ega episode, I believe, which is essentially humor that undercuts a dramatic moment to relieve tension. I don't think that was necessary in some points, and I would have preferred to just stay in the serious emotions, but relatively small gripe for a very intimate and sincere and sweet movie. Today is August 9th, 2022, Eli here, and I just watched The Poseidon Adventure from 1972 with my family. <laughs> my parents. Hello. Hi. <laughs> and my brother. Hi. Noah, what did you think of the movie? Extraordinary and amazing. What did you like about it? <laughs> how they had to escape the ship like a scary maze and all that. Mm-hmm. Good special effects. Yeah. And what did you think rewatching it first time since you saw it in theaters? Uh, yeah, I think it didn't stand the test of time. <laughs> Seemed much better when I was nine years old. <laughs> but we had fun. <laughs> Today is August 11th, 2022. This is Eli. I just watched Court from 2014 by Chaitanya Tamhane. And this was a movie that has been on my radar for a while, particularly because I know Ben enjoys that movie and the work of Tamhane. He mentioned The Disciple in our 2021 in review episode. Already feels like a long time ago. Court is a little perplexing, but very subtle and interesting. And going from the trailers, I was really expecting a movie more about the folk singer at the center of the movie who has been accused of abetting a suicide of a sewage worker who dies in the sewer because of a lyric that the folk singer possibly sang encouraging sewage workers to die in the sewer as an act of social protest. So it's a lot about art and social movements, or at least that's kind of what I was expecting, but it's really more about the court system and these two lawyers who we learn their backgrounds and what might be feeding their political views, hypocrisies, and ultimately how all of that gets ensnared in a months-long process that keeps 
the folk singer who's elderly stuck in this trial for a very long time as his health is ailing. It ends in a very odd way that I'm not sure how to read, but I'm interested by and I trust that there's something there, particularly with how the very final beat contrasts with the opening moments of the movie. Honestly, this is something that I want to ask Ben more about, so hopefully I'll have the chance to do so very soon. It is Saturday, August 13th, 2022. Eli here. I watched Sympathy for Lady Vengeance by Park Chan-wook. I don't know why I keep on watching Park Chan-wook movies because I'm routinely creeped out and unnerved by them and not particularly in a way that makes me think a ton afterwards other than like, wow, that was messed up, men suck, (laughs) which they do, to be clear. I I don't know. There's a certain fun in not knowing how he's going to freak you out this time. Sympathy for Lady Vengeance is not quite as harsh on the viewer as the first in the Vengeance trilogy, Mr. Vengeance. And what I mean by that is that the characters perhaps act more cruelly in this movie. They're a little bit more hapless in Mr. Vengeance. But the world and the sense of cruel culmination and the ways in which the upsetting things mount in Mr. Vengeance is harsher on the viewer than what happens in Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. The peak of the experience for me is a sequence, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers for Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, when the main character shows the parents of the children who Mr. Bake has killed videotapes of their murders in order to convince them that Mr. Bake is the guy and to transfer her hatred of Mr. Bake onto them to motivate them and really manipulate them into killing Mr. Bake. That is when it actually feels the most interesting and thought-provoking as to thinking about the ways in which the different people in the room are acting in the wrong way. And what exactly is so cruel about what the main character is doing. Overall, it's probably not something I'm going to watch again, but it does have things about it that are really interesting and on a certain level enjoyable. And, you know, I am still going to watch Decision to Leave because I think his filmmaking is only getting sharper. Handmaiden probably being my favorite of his movies, if not old boy so far. It's just funny that for for a filmmaker who I don't really love, I keep on kind of going back to his movies and I don't really know <laughs> why <laughs> because they're not really my favorites and they're not what I go to the movies for to experience so much. Even though I know I've been talking on the pod recently about how I like being freaked out or challenged. In this way, it's it's a visceral sort of challenge without a ton of thought. I think that's how I feel about Park Chan-wook. There are exceptions to that, as happened in that sequence that I named in Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. Final observation, no one can direct a creeped out and traumatized smile to the camera like Park Chan-wook can. That's a pretty memorable thing about his movies in multiple of his movies. So yeah, I'm excited for a decision to leave. It is August 17th, 2022. Eli here. I watched The Fly continuing my dive into the movies of David Cronenberg. 
I realized looking at Letterboxd after I logged the fly that I've seen eight of Cronenberg's movies now, which is more than I thought I had. The Fly, while not the least favorite of my Cronenbergs, I would put in the middle. I am really taken by the prosthetic work and the gross-out horror, the, the body horror, of course. That stuff is just transcendent. And those moments when wordless things happen, when Jeff Goldblum is climbing the stairs and reveling in his superhumanism, when he is doing the flips around the bars in his lab slash apartment. I'm not so taken by the character work and the dialogue. Too many jokes, like quips, and really not very good <laughs> dialogue, sorry. I also realized that I don't think of Cronenberg as someone who's particularly impressive with his camera placement and camera direction, but what he puts onto the screen and the thematic material is very interesting. This is one of those movies that lands on the side of being a little moral panicky about body modification and transformation, and I'm just a little less compelled by those kinds of Cronenberg movies than the crashes and the crimes of the future. So if we are angling towards the Cronenberg series, if this becomes the popular pick, I know it would be in contrast to one of those movies. It's Saturday, August 20th, 2022. Eli here. I just watched Resurrection, directed by Andrew Siemens, the new horror a uh, thrillery, horror-y movie uh, starring Rebecca Hall. This is another trauma horror movie that holds its cards very close to the chest for about half of the movie before it lets you know what the traumatic backstory is. I think that's a choice that ultimately gets in the way of what the movie wants to accomplish by its end. I won't give that away, but I find that there are some choices that limit our understanding of Rebecca Hall's perspective that ultimately do not help us understand that ending. Even beyond understand, really feel viscerally. I know that there are a lot of people who disagree with me on this, but I did not find the ending particularly shocking or emotional. Though I will say that the very last scene I thought was quite effective, but I think people are mostly reacting to that big, gory, ostensibly fun climax. To me, the last shot is the real height of the movie in terms of terror. I'm curious to see what Siemens does next. I think he's a very competent director. I ultimately wonder why this character is put through with so much suffering thematically. I don't fully understand by the end of the movie. It is August 22nd, 2022. Eli here. I just watched Ishtar from 1987, directed by Elaine May, in preparation for the recording of the Brightwall Darkroom podcast tomorrow on that movie. I produced that podcast, I should say. It's pretty funny. It's got an unnecessarily bad rap, but I know it's receiving its critical reevaluation, including on uh, Blank Check, I think a year or two ago when they were covering Elaine May. It's got fun characters. It's very weirdly structured and paced, but ultimately there's enough charm in there that it's a fun time. Anytime Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty are performing, it's very funny. It's also 
very much so a proto burn after reading, which anyone who's listened to our episodes on Joel and Ethan Cohen knows is one of my favorite movies, period. So if you're a fan of burn after reading and like idiots getting wrapped up in political conspiracies, this is one to check out for sure. Thank you for listening to my summer 2022 movie diary and to Deep Cut. Please remember to check out Wilson and Ben's Summer Movie Diaries and our Summer Viewing Roundup discussion on the Deep Cut feed. One more reminder to please give us a rating or a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also keep up with Deep Cut at Deep Cut Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. If you want to talk about movies or other art with us, please join us on our Discord server to which you'll find a link in the episode description. I'm Eli Sands, and I'm looking forward to talking about more movies with Ben and Wilson and you next time.